This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Alan LaRose on the line with us. He's principal at Mannion & Associates Financial Services in Maple Ridge. He's been active in financial service industry for over 20 years. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So estate planning. Man, oh man, that can be hard. From I, I think of it as being hard for myself, but I remember then having to facilitate what others around me had planned, and there's lots of anxiety around it. Not always fun, uh, but do not doing it is a pretty bad thing overall. Would you agree? Yes, yes. It's uh, estate planning uh, is uh, it. it it can be overwhelming because there's so many little components and steps to it. It's uh, but when proper estate planning, you know, you break it down, uh, can make the whole process easier, uh, and also gives you peace of mind when you have that done. Yeah, and easier on, on everyone, the people who have to facilitate it, uh, as well as you at the end of the day, knowing that things are in place the way you want them to be. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, and and really good estate planning, you know, everyone has a car, a home, cottage, checking accounts, personal possessions, uh, no matter how large or, or modest, uh, everyone has an estate. And the one thing in common is you can't take it with you. Exactly. So let's so, talk about some planning tips and strategies just for the average consumer. Well, um, you know, it's uh, an estate plan is is, is not difficult uh, to do. It's uh, starting out with the legal documents, and uh, one of the, some of the key points is uh, uh, picking that right person, uh, picking someone you trust to be that executor. And do you, um, and, and Alan, before you go any further, would you say that everybody should do this? Yeah, yeah, everyone should should look at estate planning. Um, we all have stuff and we all have people in our lives that are important to us. So, uh, to connect where that stuff goes and who gets it, you know, that's estate planning. That's essentially what it is. So, uh, even someone like a lot of, a lot of couples, they inadvertently have done excellent estate planning without even knowing it. They jointly own their homes. Mm-hmm. They have joint bank accounts. They've named each other as beneficiaries on their RSPs and TFSAs. Uh, but the process of, of going through it and sitting down just to make sure they haven't missed something simple along the way. That makes sense. And how do you start that co- that conversation? Because, you know, I, I find it with, with my clients sometimes it, it's tough to, you know, talk about, you know, the nebulous out there. It's going to happen at some day, but not tomorrow. And therefore, I'm not, not going to worry about it. Um, you know, when is the right time to start getting things together? And if you're a couple, for example, how do you start to have those conversations? Well, yeah, that's a that's a tough one to answer is the right time to start that conversation is now the mm-hmm. sooner the better because uh, human nature you'll just put it off and keep putting it off so uh, uh, it's something that should also be reviewed you know have you have any major changes uh, marriage divorce child um, it needs to be reviewed and updated along the way so uh, um, that's all very important uh, with it 
it's it's just a matter of taking the time to actually sit down and say, okay, we've got to do this. All right. Well, let's start. Uh, one of the uh, one of the to- uh, not topics, but one of the terms that gets thrown around is a living will. Often see it in television shows when they're taking place in the hospital, etc. <laughs> so let's talk about what is a living will. Well, strictly speaking, BC does not have any statutory laws pertaining to living wills. What we have here in BC are enduring power of attorneys and representation agreements. Two really important things, and if you're thinking, oh, and your eyes are rolling into the back of your head when you heard Alan use those terms, this is where you really need to have to pay attention because it's they're very, very, very important. They are. In fact, I, I often tell people uh, the enduring power of attorney is, impo- is quite possibly the most important of the documents, especially in this day and age. Let's so these, talk about it, Alan. What, it, what is it exactly? Well, these documents come into play when you can't act on your own behalf, um, but you're still alive. So, you know, and that could be a permanent situation such as dementia or Alzheimer's, or it could be something temporary like a car accident that's just led to being unconscious at the time. Um, uh, I've often heard people say, well, I don't uh, dismiss these forms. They say, I don't need these. I've named so-and-so as my executor. Exactly. The reality is an executor has no powers well, you're still alive. Yeah, and it's really important because if you don't name somebody as uh, your power, enduring power of attorney or to be responsible for your representation agreement, then other people get to make those decisions. Well, it, there is, there is kind of like a default uh, in regards to some of the issues covered by a representation agreement. But with the enduring power of attorney, and this is one of the reasons why I, I personally feel it's one of the more important documents, um, there is no real default uh, out there. It, it, you, people end up having to go to court um, to solve some of the issues that a simple document could, could resolve. It's really important for folks to know that. Mm-hmm. So even is, even something is. like you know a married couple accessing a, a bank account, if both spouses aren't on there and suddenly one spouse passes away, you're looking at a court application unless you've got this enduring power of attorney. Well, I, I had a, a situation that arose where a husband and wife owned the house jointly. Uh, the gentleman ended up having to go into long-term care because of dementia. Um, because of that, the the wife couldn't afford the house anymore as well as the care, and it was too much physical work for her to take care of it. The problem is, because of the husband's name on the house, she couldn't sell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, an enduring power of attorney document would have resolved that. Right, because, yeah, he couldn't sign off on a sale, and unless she has the power of attorney, she can't either. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. So uh, uh, it, it took going to court and getting what's called committeeship uh, of a state appointed uh, just for her to put the house on the market. Let's talk about that representation agreement, Alan. Okay. What does it mean, and who should have one? Well, a representation agreement is, is one of the, the newer legal documents in, in B.C. Um, it can be, th- there's a lot of variations on what can be done with it. Most commonly, though, it is used in regards to appointing someone to make health care and personal care decisions. Um, Ontario has a similar document. They call it a power of attorney for health care, which uh, is a little bit more descriptive of, of what that does. So uh, there are other uses as well. It's for special circumstances. Single parents uh, should look at it. Uh, 
for naming someone to uh, take care of children, minor children, if they become incapacitated uh, as well. So, I guess in, in a broad sense, so the enduring POA is for financial matters, the representation agreement sounds like it's more broad, health, family matters, things like that? It is, it is. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of overlap in it uh, with it. There are some special circumstances there. But the, combined, the two documents are, are, are very important to consider, especially in this day and age where, you know, more people survive strokes and heart attacks. Uh, we see more and more cases of dementia and Alzheimer's in society. Uh, these are things where, you know, the will doesn't apply. As part of this discussion of estate planning 101, Alan, what are a couple of the things, the top three things uh, to decide when planning your estate? So you've gotten rid of your anxiety and you're sitting down and you're really looking at it. What are the kind, couple of things that we really need to pay attention to? Well, one thing all the legal documents have in common is, is appointing someone to act on your behalf, be it an executor in a will or a representative in a representation agreement. Um, and I've always said the most important thing with that is picking someone you trust, uh, as well as someone your beneficiaries trust as well. Uh, if I've seen many cases where people have made their documents and their whole estate plan overly complex, and when you drill down and you look at it, it's because they don't trust someone or, or there's some lack of trust in the whole process. Um, why would you have an enduring power of attorney document that requires your, uh, your uh, appointed attorney to always have doctor's notes um, if you don't trust them? And uh, often I get answers, well, uh, I get the answer that they they afraid the person may sell their home out from underneath them. Mm. Well, I'm going, you know, if you're worried about the person doing that while you are of sound mind, what are you going to do when you're not able to say anything or do anything? It's really important to, to trust either the person or uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be a person either, does it? No, it uh, you can appoint, uh, you know, the, you can have a trust company or a, a legal professional appointed uh, in these roles. Um, in a will, for instance, you don't need to name a family member who's also a beneficiary. It can be any legal adult who's willing and able to do the job. What happens when there is no will or estate plan in place for a person? It's a mess. <laughs> it, it is a mess. Uh, th- there are defaults on how a person's estate uh, gets distributed. Uh, it's very, very rare um, that everyone is completely happy with those defaults. There's normally something about them they don't like. Uh, even in the event you did, you were perfectly fine with, with how the, the law would distribute your estate without a will. Uh, having a will will make it quicker, simpler, and ultimately cheaper. Any resources, Alan, as we wrap up? We've just got a a couple of minutes left of resources where people can get uh, information or some assistance with with thinking about this before they actually sit down and start writing it and thinking about those those terms that we've just talked about. Well, the one thing I say is is everyone should uh, seriously consider going to a notary uh, to have these documents done up. Uh, you can go to a notary or a lawyer that specializes in estate planning, but a notary um, tends to be able to more than meet the needs that most people uh, need. And in the event that you need something that a notary can't do, uh, they will refer you to a, a lawyer that you can be uh, confident is uh, 
is up to date and knows what they're doing uh, in regards to estate planning. So. And what about a financial planner? Do they ever get involved in the estate planning or can they? They can and often do. And, and uh, there's lots of things that a financial planner can bring to the table as well. They can uh, help with that initial checklist to make sure you've uh, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, uh, haven't missed any of the simple uh, things in estate planning, such as making sure you have named beneficiaries on everything that can and, and, and structuring things in ways to help minimize the whole process and, and minimize the cost overall. There's a lot of things to think about uh, when you sit down or before you sit down to work out your will and, and uh, name all the people or the, the organizations that you want involved in this process. Uh, Alan LaRose, he's principal at Mannion & Associates Financial Services in Maple Ridge. Loads of experience. A website, nice and easy to remember if you want to get a hold of Alan, mannion.ca. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. Get a financial fresh start. Call Sands & Associates 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With Blair right now, talking about steps to take when you owe taxes. Mm -hmm. And this is for, you want to pay attention to this if you're one of those people, and there's tens of thousands of you, you're not alone, that you haven't paid your taxes. Yeah, you get that notice of assessment back, and instead of saying, you know, deposited into your account refund, it says, no, balance due, and by the way, we're charging you interest. So it's not a, not a happy notice of assessment to receive. And in some cases, it might go back a few years. I mean, I yeah. know lots of folks who just, for some reason, at some point, stop paying taxes. And I thought, are you kidding me? You, mm-hmm. you, you know, they have income, they have all that stuff, and yet... Uh, somewhere along the line, they decided, oh, no, I don't need to file my taxes. I'll have to pay a little bit at the end, but yeah. whatever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I see that day in and day out. You know, I've, some people, they've went 20 years without, without filing taxes, just off the grid. And you know, obviously, they're not getting government benefits. They're not getting GST checks. You know, there's a bunch of reasons why you'd want to file your taxes every year. But the most important one is it's the law. So you not filing taxes is actually worse than owing the government a ton of money. That's okay. We can deal with that. But if you're a non-filer, that's actually the worst status you could be in Canada Revenue Agency's mind because it's really, it's your job. Part of being in civilization is you got to file your taxes every year. And it has gotten easier too, Elaine. You know, 20 years ago, you had to do a lot of things by hand and calculators and all that. Most people can do their taxes inside of half an hour with some software. You pick up a Costco, you know, do five returns for $30. You know, it doesn't have to cost you a lot or take you whole lot of time. Right. Now, a couple of reasons why people wouldn't, and I understand this, if you've got a bunch of different jobs. Yeah. So in terms of how you end up owing the government money, quite usually it's not a surprise, but sometimes it is. And something that could surprise you is if you're working multiple jobs, you know, say you got a second job to make ends meet, um, you know, finances are tight and you think you're doing, doing something great, getting some extra income. What can happen is if your second employer isn't told off the top to deduct taxes at a higher rate, you might not be getting enough taxes deducted 
deducted from your second job, which means at the end of the year, the government is going to want some of those dollars paid to you, paid back to them. And a lot of the times with a second job, you know, you're getting that money and you're spending it on necessities. You're not saving it. You know, it's extra money. So extra money. I I don't need to, I don't need to hang on to this. This is extra money. Right. So when the tax bill comes due, um, you know, you can imagine the bit of the depressed feeling too, saying, oh my God, all, all this work. Now I've got to work extra hard to clear the tax bill from last year. One of the things, too, I I ran into a very long time ago, worked for uh, a company that decided all of its employees were going to be contract players, Mm, even though we had a very set time that we had to be in the building to do our job uh, for a certain time uh, every day, Monday to Friday. uh, But they thought, no, we're, we're pretty sure that this is okay. And they said, one little proviso, that you may want to save some money. Just in case you may want to, they come back and say, "No, you can't do this. You need to pay this and this and this." Yeah. Uh, and it was a shock to the company. Of course, uh, Canada Revenue came back and said, "Oh no, what you people are doing as a company mm-hmm. is wrong." But it was the onus was on the employees yeah. to then uh, pony up all the money that we uh, didn't pay out on a on a per check like you do mm-hmm. now in in most in most businesses. Yeah, I see that a lot in the film industry, specific to the lower mainland here, where a lot of, um, you know, not even employees, because they're basically independent contractors. Right. And they may work on the same show for quite some time, or, you know, under the same umbrella, a bunch of different shows. But the big difference is the onus goes, and you can see why employers would want to do this, the onus goes from the employer to have to pay taxes on your behalf to Canada Revenue Agency, to the onus goes completely to the employee, that you're going to receive a gross amount of wages, and your responsibility is to put money money aside to pay the tax man at the end of the year or pay them monthly. But it's so much more work and more difficult for you having to do it yourself instead of being someone that gets a paycheck and gets the taxes withheld and everything is compliant from that perspective. Yeah, it's a little easier for sure. Oh, absolutely. But you know, I think you're right. In today's uh, working world, especially in a city like Vancouver, where you've got uh, not just film and television and, and that entertainment industry going on, but you've got the huge tech sector too. And you can work on small jobs, small projects, uh, or contracts with various companies. And they don't necessarily have to be a Canadian company. They could be Mm -hmm. from the States, from California, and all, you know, different things apply. So really important to pay attention to that. Yeah, if you're not getting deducted taxes, if you're getting an amount that's no gross wages and nothing is taken off of it, take between 25 and 35% of it and just put it away. The best case is at the end of the year, you're not going to owe that much in tax, but at least you'll have a really good starting point if you do end up owing tax, if you saved some of that gross amount. Yeah. Okay. So good advice. 25 to 35% in the bank, in a savings account, do not touch. That's right. For the year. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what other what other causes do we have for people that end up uh, owing taxes? Oh, yeah. Cashing in your RRSPs. Yeah. Hugely depressing one, right? Because yeah, quite is. often you're cashing in RRSPs as a lump sum to do something with it. And mm-hmm. often that something is to pay some debt. And, you know, usually that's a very bad move. And we'll talk about that on, on another show. But you don't have to cash in RRSPs to pay debt. But the impact is that when you cash in RRSPs, all that money comes into income in the current year. So when you put the money away, you got the tax break back however many years ago and you got a bit of a refund, but now the government is going to count that as your income. And when you pull the money out from the financial institution, they're going to hold back 10 to 30%, but that may not be even close to what your marginal tax rate is, depending on what your income is. Right. So it could be the case that at the end of the year, 
The RRSP money is gone, but there's a tax liability that could be significant for those RRSP funds when they were pulled out. So you might end up, you know, just trading one problem for another, meaning that you now owe the government instead of the debt that you tried to clear with the RRSPs, but you don't have your RRSPs anymore because they've been cashed in or at least a significant portion. So the very best advice when it comes to RRSPs Don't touch them? Don't touch them. Consider it the same as a company pension plan. You can't touch a company or a government pension plan. You don't have that option, and that's a good thing because otherwise, you know, you might cash it in your time of need and not have it later. Treat your RRSPs the exact same. Don't cash them in in your time of need. Now, if I'm at the other end of my working life and I'm nearing the end of my working Mm -hmm. time, uh, what do I do with my RRSPs at that point? Yeah, and that's when it's a totally different conversation. Then it's okay. At some point, you want to start drawing these down for the purpose, which is to support your income during retirement. So ideally, you're going to work with an advisor or you're going to figure things out on your own, but you're going to forecast your tax liability. So you'll know exactly what you can pull out, knowing that you'll have enough to make your tax payments at, at the end of the year. So it's important to do that calculation. It's also really important to remember that that does become income. Yeah. Like when you start taking that money out, which I I went through with my parents and it was, I just thought, what? We have to pay tax on that money for my dad? It's like, that seemed like a crazy thing. He's already, and of course they calmed me down and said, no, Mm -hmm. that's that's the beauty of this thing is that this money's been saved. Now he gets to use it. But based on the income, whatever that may be, you've got to pay on it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, let's see, what else? Receiving EI benefits. Yeah, so if you end up uh, receiving EI benefits and you start to work and there's some overlap there, dollar for dollar, the government is going to hold you accountable for any benefits that you received when you were also working. So even if it was, you know, just a two-week overlap, that could be a couple thousand dollars, you know, at the, at the end of the year here. Um, so be very, very careful that your EI benefits are coordinated exactly to when you've either started or, or stopped working. If there's some overlap, some double dipping, um, the government takes a very harsh view of that. They basically call it fraud, um, essentially, and they're, they're not going to be willing to walk away for, from that debt. So they will collect from you. So just try not to get yourself in that situation. And so, so clearly that means... What? When it comes to EI, that EI has to end Mm -hmm. on whatever date. You just have to tell them when you start working. That's the biggest thing. This debt arises if you continue to collect EI and you start working and you don't tell them. Okay, so EI ending on the 30th, my job starts on the 1st, I'm in good shape. You're generally okay, yep. We cover a lot of topics here every week on Dollars and Cents, from mistakes not to make when you're in debt to mapping out the mystery behind credit scores and reports and everything in between. We'd love your input as a listener on what financial-related topics are important to you. Tell us what you want to learn more about. Send us an email to radio at sands-trustee.com. That's radio at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Confidential in-person consultations with Sands & Associates are always free. Simply call Sands & Associates at one 800 
661-3030 or visit the Sands & Associates website at sands-trustee.com to book your free consultation today. If you're not ready to meet in person or know someone who's resisting reaching out to a debt management professional like Sands & Associates, we still want to help. Simply send us an email with the breakdown of your debts, any assets that you have, such as a vehicle, home, or RRSPs, a basic idea as to your household's income, expenses, and general budget, plus any relevant information about your circumstances and situation. We'll review your situation anonymously during a segment and talk about what sort of solutions could be used to get you to a debt-free future. Send us the email at radio at sands-trustee.com. That's radio at sands-trustee.com today. With us right now is Shannon, uh, and uh, it's a very special uh, piece that we're going to share with you with Shannon, her story. Uh, she was uh, able to successfully achieve a financial fresh start uh, going through bankruptcy. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to just share my story, and hopefully, you know, there's somebody out there who's listening who, who can see a little bit of, of themselves and, and just hear my story today and help somebody out there. Oh, that, that's great, Janet. And again, we thank you for being courageous to do so. And I, I'm sure yeah. folks folks that are listening, um, you know, if it's not their situation, it's someone in their life is, is facing a debt challenge and any insight is going to be helpful. Exactly. Uh, so I wonder just from a background point of view, can you tell us about the situation that led to you having to file a personal bankruptcy? Sure. It was actually a specific um, series of events that led to kind of a, a buildup of debt quickly in my life. I, I was 27. I had... Um, I had a divorce that started to kind of build up. I kind of had to start from scratch, literally from scratch. So, you know, I had to head out on my own, buy everything that I needed. Um, It was followed about eight months later by a major health crisis. Mm. I had organ failure, needed to have a transplant. And and I was also self-employed at the time. So (laughs) you don't think at 27 it's going to happen to you. And that's a big thing. I was self-employed and I didn't have insurance. So I ended up being going through a major health crisis, living on my credit line. I didn't want to reach out for help, and I had a lot of people offer help, but instead I lived on a credit line for, you know, the pre-sickness and, and then the, the recovery. So it was about about a year that I, because I was self-employed, didn't have health insurance, I built debt, bu- debt built up for about, you know, a few months pri- before my surgery, and then afterwards I also, you know, didn't work for about, almost a good year. So that oh. was all on a credit line. And um, so, so Shannon, you, you were obviously quite ill and, you know, medical care is one of the, the great parts of living in Canada, but it sounds like without, well, without this yeah. credit line, you would have had probably zero income coming in if you were self-employed without disability. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that coupled with the divorce that happened just before where I had to literally start from, you know, buying forks, knives, bedding. I had to build everything, you know, build up furniture, furnishings. Um, I had to restart my life. So that and followed eight, seven months later by the the illness. Uh, it just, it was a very quick series of events that built debt up very quickly. It kind of all snowballed and I was doing well financially. So I'm like, no problem. It'll, it'll be very, it'll be building up quickly, but I, I got this. I can do this. Like you just figure you'll get back to well. work. You'll clear the debt eventually. Yeah. 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 I, I I made good money, so I wasn't I wasn't afraid. I was selling real estate at the time. I was not worried at all, and mm-hmm. I'd always done well for myself. I had perfect credit, R one credit. Um, I was making good money, and you know I, I I wasn't worried. But what happened is 
there was another hit that came, which was the <laughs> the recession. Things kind of hit there as well, and nobody was buying houses. So this was a few years ago, but um, that was the final kick. And I, you know, I was I got my life back, I got my health back, but my my career was ending. Like there was. We, we nobody was purchasing homes. We there was nothing I could do, and I was in a. Uh, I wasn't living here. I was living in a different town at the time, and it was literally um, my career was basically ending, and there was not much I could do about it. So, I I tried for about two years to get out of that hole, and I did ev- literally everything I could. I was working. I was delivering phone books. I was doing little jobs on the side. I was doing absolutely everything I could think of to make my mortgage payments. I had real estate investments. I had two homes. I had um, payments. I was doing everything I could think of to get out of this hole. I was doing everything, and it was starting to show up in my health. And this is where I really want to reach out to those people who are in that hole right now. I want you to listen to me. You know that that financial stress, it affects your health. It was affecting my health to the point where it was showing up in my blood work. My, my, my health was starting to decline very rapidly. So it was affecting my health to, to the point where my doctors were getting concerned. And, and I, you know, I was literally not physically capable of working to the extent that I needed to, to pay my bills. Um, and I, I just was like, what do I do? I was, I, I was losing sleep at night and I tried for two years to get out of that hole. Um, and then, and and then Shannon, how long did it, what was the period of time when you, when you realized that you weren't, you, this was it, you were not going to be able to get yourself out of that. Two years. It was two two years, years. two years from when it started snowballing. And I'm like, no, I got this. And I, you know, I was proactive from the start. I, I still had been, I was very proactive. I'd let the creditors know what was happening. I returned a lease voluntarily when I'm like, okay, I got to start unloading stuff. I've got to lower my debt load. And I, um, I felt sick about the idea of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. This is going to, you know, a lot of people are going to understand that the quitting factor. But when it comes to that point where you, your health, and for me, it was literally getting to the point where, you know, I've been given the gift of life. I did not want to put that at risk. That was, that was it. But, you know, when your life, when your health is at risk, you've really got to, and it's, you know, it comes down to your pride. A lot of people can relate to that. You don't want to quit. Mm-hmm. You don't want to quit. You don't want to give up. You don't want to feel like that. It was, it's ego. It really comes down to, to that. But I finally went, I reached out and I met with somebody and, you know, you don't want to feel like a quitter, but there are these, these systems are, are here for a reason. And I finally right. reached out. And when I finally did, I, I understood that there's, these systems are there for us for a reason. And when I finally reached out and met with a trustee, I just, it all came off my shoulders. It was, it was so easy. And I understood, I finally understood the process and they literally, they took over and they did everything. And, you know, I was very proactive and I didn't have, you know, the creditors chasing me. I was very proactive, but I understand how hard it is to get to that point. But 
um, at this point, when, once they did take over, I never had another, the, it all goes to them. Right. Nobody can legally call you after that. So that's what I really want people to understand is it's done. The second you reach out to somebody and you have a trustee, they legally cannot call you. People yeah, Jenny, cannot call you. You're, you're saying things so, so perfectly. Um, I just, yeah. Did, yeah, just to put a, a fine point this, on it. And as, as you mentioned, you know, this is the law, right? You know, the, the government, legal. the government yeah. created this law and the actual wording for it is someone that's been honest, but unfortunate. And the story that you, you've recalled, recounted to us here, that that's you, right? You know, you, yeah. you were honest the whole time. You had a series of unfortunate events and isn't it great that parliament created this law to get us, you know, a fresh start to get you back on track. It's a law. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what I've learned from this is that there is a process to it. Um, what I've learned from it, I've now, I, I have had a fresh start. Um, I've sold my, my homes, everything was sold. And there's a whole process with that. I'm not going to get into it. But I now do everything, you know, I base everything on cash. That's my choice. However, I do want everybody to know that I'm two years post bankruptcy. I own a home. I have a mortgage. I have a credit card. I am wow. back to R1 credit. Mm-hmm. I just did a, a Equifax. I pulled my credit. I'm back in the 700s. I have a credit card from a legit credit card. I have a mortgage. I am back up there. Like there's yep. things you can do to rebuild your credit very quickly. There's little tricks you can do. You just need to be educated, proactive. And you can get there. You just need to reach out and do that. And, and Shannon, that, that's just great insight because yes. to a person, everyone that comes in the door, they're so worried about their credit You're rating. Scared. And, I you know, it. off the top, they think bankruptcy takes seven years, which it doesn't. It, does. it, it takes, you know, know, nine months or 21 months. And most people rebuild their credit two or three years after. So you're exactly proving, um, you know, the, the day-to-day reality. But most people have a conception that it's going to be so much worse and so much, you know, with a legacy yeah. of impact than is actually the case. And this is why I want to be on the radio today and reach out to everybody out there who, if you know somebody, just explain what you're hearing today. It's not like that anymore. There's things you can do. You just need to make the call, go have a meeting, learn about it, educate yourself. It's very different. You just need to just, there's a couple points I want to make. You're not being a quitter. There's, there's, there's a reason they have this process. Things happen in life. And what I want to say, there's systems in place for a reason. We are human. We make mistakes. The thing is, just learn from it. Don't do this again. Things ha- it, As long as you can learn through this process and don't repeat it, it's okay. You can make a mistake. We don't, all, because you've gone bankrupt, it does not mean that you're a huge spendaholic spender. Maybe you were. Maybe you went through a phase. It's still okay. You're human. We all make mistakes. Maybe you've had what happened to me and you just had a snowball of events. It happens. But there's this process called bankruptcy for a reason. And, you know, credit cards, they make a lot of interest. They make a lot of money. This that this is why we can afford to go through a process called bankruptcy. This is why that system is in place. The government's done it for a reason to help people get a fresh start. And this is why I wanted to do this today is really to help explain my experience through it so people can understand how it truly works from my personal experience. I two years out and I'm a fresh start and I'm back in the real estate. I got a home, got a credit card. I run a business. It's successful. And I could get a loan if I wanted to, but I never know when my health is going to go sideways. So I've chosen to build it on cash. So I'm never in that situation again because that really sucked. But um, <laughs> I just, I really hope that 
somebody out there can hear this story today, that stress, I mean, I've gone through the dying process and it was awful, but financial stress was actually worse than what I experienced by going through the dying process. Financial stress was worse. Shannon, your story. horrendous. Shannon, your story is so great, and I know that it's resonating with folks that are listening. I hope so. Uh, I really hope so. Yeah. No, you've done, a, you've done a great job. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Debt can come from all kinds of places, not just credit cards. I think that's the first thing probably people think of. Um, So let's look at other debts that can show up that can cause all kinds of problems for us. Yeah, I'd say almost every client that we have has a credit card. You know, it's probably high 90 percentile and things like that. But there's a bunch of other debts that, yeah, unless you've you've been in this debt, you might not even know it exists. Um, I think the point of today's segment is we can fix just about everything. And here's a bunch of other types of debts um, that we can potentially help with. But let's talk about each of the debts, how they arise and what you can do with them. Yeah. And I want to just throw in there, we're talking about a licensed insolvency trustee, Mm -hmm. an LIT, they're the ones who, which Blair is one, they're the folks that can actually help you uh, manage all kinds of these, all the debts. Yeah, we're the only person you need to see. If you've got a debt problem in Canada, we can help. Okay, so some types of debt that most people would think of as being a cause of problems would be credit mm-hmm. cards for sure. Yep. Uh, overdrafts, I guess so. It's not mm-hmm. very. I'm not very familiar with the whole overdraft idea, mm-hmm. but I guess people do get into problems with it. Oh yeah, and I see that with you know some people if they've had an account with the bank for 20 years, they might have a $10,000 overdraft, a $20,000 overdraft. You know, the average person might have 500 bucks or something like that, okay. just in case they you know write a check or something that goes a bit bigger. But yeah, overdraft can be a significant problem. And lines of credit, certainly. I, mm-hmm. I know that uh, I'm familiar with that. Oh, yeah. Something to keep in something to keep tabs on for sure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the other ones other than those three. Yeah, let's start with the big one. Uh, so Canada Revenue Agency, Huge. tax debts. So we talk about this a lot on the, on the program here, and CRA is probably the worst person you could owe money to um, because they've got the most power and also the least ability to compromise on that debt unless you're actually dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee. So how this often arises um, is, you know, either somebody is self-employed, and when you're self-employed, nobody tells you that you now got to be your own accountant, your own bookkeeper, your own tax preparer, and if you do something wrong or don't put the money aside, well, the government's going to come asking for that money next year, and you might not have it. Yeah. You know, sometimes it happens when you're working a second job. You know, you think you're doing everything right by increasing your income, but you don't tell the second employer that now you're going to be in a higher tax bracket, so they should be withholding more tax from you, and you end up with a tax bill. Or you yourself don't think of that to yeah. put that money aside exactly. so you've got it at the end of the year. And that's very challenging to mm-hmm. do. So however it happens, you know, the end result is you owe the government some money and they start sending you these notices that say, hey, you know, include full payment with your response back to this letter or else we're going to take some action against you. And what that action is, again, more so than any other creditor without even suing you, they can go straight to your employer. They can take up to 30% of your wages. 
Um, they can go straight to your bank account and take everything that's in there. Um, and if you own real estate, they can go and register on title um, to that real estate and make sure they get paid when you sell. So if you've got some tax debt, it's really important that you come in and you talk to a licensed insolvency trustee and we figure out what we can do to keep CRA at bay and work out a deal. And we can safely say, talk to an LIT, not a credit counselor, Absolutely. and not a what the other one was, the agency. Yeah, that, debt settlement debt agency. Debt settlement no. agency. The only person that can ever make a deal on your tax debt is going to be a licensed insolvency trustee. Now, is that the same situation with a student loan, if I happen <laughs> to be somebody who's got a, a huge student loan at this point? Yeah, exactly. Now, with, with a student loan, the remedies are still the same, meaning that it's a government debt, it doesn't go away over time, and they theoretically could come and take your wages or your assets. But most of the time with student loans, they're a lot more reasonable. You know, oh. they tend to look at the situation, you know, didn't you didn't get the student loan because you were self-employed and didn't pay tax. You got the student loan because you tried to go to school to invest in yourself. And, you know, if things aren't working out after graduation, often they're more reasonable in their collections. Now, it does hit, you know, eventually a limit point where they're not going to wait forever. And if you can't make any payments, eventually they're going to be just like Canada Revenue Agency and start to seize wages or take assets. Um, but typically it takes a little bit longer for them to get to that point than just a tax debt. And again, the output here is you can absolutely make a deal on your student loans. You have to do it as part of a consumer proposal or as part of a bankruptcy. And as we talked about a few times, when you have student debt in Canada, there's at least a five-year waiting period from when you graduate to when that debt can be reduced. So you got to graduate, make your best efforts to, to pay the debt back, and then you can deal with a trustee. That's a really important point, too. It's not something you can get looked after right away. Mm-hmm. You've got to make an effort and, and then not be able to look after it anymore. Yeah, that's right. Okay. What about payday loans? Yeah, payday loans. Um, you know, this one I've often called the crack cocaine of debt um, yeah. because Ugh. it's you know it's it's the easiest to access. It's very inexpensive theoretically to start to get into it, um, but it never stops at just one payday loan. It often escalates to the point where people have five payday loans, ten, even fifteen outstanding at a certain time. So. Usually payday loans are a big warning sign that if you were deciding about, hey, I'm going to phone the trustee or I'm going to get a payday loan to get me through to, you know, to the next payday, phone the trustee instead. Yeah. Uh, because I speak to so many people, the payday loan cycle, all it did was delay them getting help by six months or 12 months or something like that. And they didn't feel good about it the whole time because they knew they were paying 400, 500% interest on the funds. Every loan they get, they have to take another one to pay it back. Um, so yeah, it can be a very, very difficult cycle to get out of. And think about that, four or 500%. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh yeah, it's theoretically illegal, but there's a carve out for specific payday loans. Oh. So, you know, they're able to do it. I know the government, you know, every year they change the regulations a bit and, you know, now it's lower than it was, but it, it's still very ridiculous, just the, the costs and fees on it. Uh, with payday loans, no special status whatsoever. If you file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, you can absolutely reduce that debt just like anybody else. And I would say to folks out there, if you've got a bunch of payday loans and, you know, they're threatening you with collection agencies and different things like that, talk to a trustee because odds are if it's a fairly small amount of money, they're never going to sue you and we can tell you what you can do to get some of the power back in that relationship. Okay. Co-signing. I think this is one of the most important things that we talk about on this show uh, because Mm -hmm. I had no idea of the stipulations that come along with co-signing for someone's debt. You're trying to help them out, give them a hand up. Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids, who knows, Mm -hmm. but... It's huge. Let's talk about that. Yeah. In, in the, the book, When Life Bites You in the Wallet, that I co-authored with uh, Leanne Davies, you know, we have a page in there that says, you know, when is it right to co-sign? 
The answer is almost never. It almost never makes sense. And in just about every situation that I've been involved in with Sands and Associates, the folks that have co-signed did so never thinking that they would have to be called to account for that debt. So, you know, it's often it's a parent who puts their name on the the son or daughter's line of credit for university, or it's someone that goes on the mortgage because they couldn't qualify otherwise, or it's someone that gets a supplementary card on a credit card account and doesn't realize they're actually going to be responsible for the balance there. So this the basically commonality there is you need to understand if you co-sign something, it's what's called joint and several liability, meaning if they don't pay, you have to pay 100%. It's not 50-50 or anything like that. And if you've co-signed a debt and the person files for bankruptcy or does a proposal, you'll be on the hook for that entire debt. So before you co-sign, think through the absolute worst case, be prepared that you may have to pay this debt. And that usually causes people to think twice before signing their name. Really important. MSP premiums, how do they work? How do they fit into this? MSP premiums are very similar um, you know, to government debt, to Canada Revenue Agency, and to student loans. Um, so not every province has MSP premiums. And you know, oftentimes, if you've got a big MSP debt, the reason you weren't paying MSP is probably because your income was really low. And when you go through and file your taxes, that MSP debt might actually disappear because some of it is geared to income. But what doesn't disappear, you're able to deal with, with either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Um, MSP, I have seen them take collection actions against folks, you know, with collection agencies, with seizing wages, seizing assets. So not something you can ignore. But before you worry about MSP, worry about getting your tax filing caught up first, because oftentimes that debt will go away. Right. I like this. And I I just want to repeat this part again on our notes here for this segment. The MSP premium calculations are driven by your tax return filings. So if your taxes aren't filed to date and you haven't heard from MSP, you can probably expect a bill waiting for you, which I don't you know, that was a surprise to me when I first learned that. Oh, yeah, they'll charge you the maximum unless you give them better information. Um, so, yeah, rather than being worried about it, get the taxes filed. And there's there's no benefit in this world of not filing your taxes. The worst thing you can be with Sierra is not to owe them money. It's to be someone that hasn't filed taxes. So even if it's going to be bad news, do the filing. Sierra is going to be less likely to collect aggressively against you if you filed rather than if you haven't filed. Okay. And the last segment or last piece of this discussion about shortfalls, mortgage, foreclosure, vehicle financing, that's a certainly a debt that we, we have all either currently have or have had. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents, Sands & Associates experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website sands-trustee.com for more information. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.